And I, I think that the best thing you can do as a photographer is to go on and kind of break the mold. Is there, is there a completely different sensibility that you bring into this place that makes it, that makes it a brand new photograph? And that's, that's the big challenge of trying to do something original. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rome From Home podcast, broadcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the podcast where we have illuminating conversations with the most prominent experts and icons in adventure, all from the Rome universe. Hosted by myself, Chris Gerard from Rome, and National Geographic photographer, storyteller, athlete, and Rome founding member, Corey Richards. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Enjoy the show. Mr. Keith Ludzinski, a contributing photographer at National Geographic, an Emmy-nominated director, in fact. Uh, His early subjects mirrored his polarized passion. Skateboarding is an amazing origin story around uh, how he got into all of this, um, all the way to exploring the quiet mountains of Colorado. Um, He built his career really around the subcultures of skating, skateboarding, uh, and then took that into all sorts of new places, in, in, including storm chasing on the other end of it. Um, today, his primary focus is natural history, climate change, extreme sports, and he does a lot of commercial work as well. Very sought after. He's, as I mentioned, uh, one of the contributing photographers of Nat Geo, like our co-host, Corey Richards. Uh, he's also a founding member of Sea Legacy Collective. He's a Nikon ambassador. And he's worked for all sorts of big, heavy blue chip brands like Apple and Disney and Toyota and Discovery, Red Bull, among others. He's been decorated uh, many times with first place honors from PDN um, and National Geographic, in fact. Uh, And he's just an awesome all around, one of the nicest guys that you've ever met. Um, I think he's probably known as like the nice guy and incredibly handsome. And if you're watching this, you can see that. But if you're listening, you can't. I would look him up. Um, and, uh, and we're just really happy to have you on today, Keith. That's great to be here. Thanks for the, the illustrious, uh, introduction. You forgot 12 time Pulitzer winner though. That yeah. should have been. <laughs> ah, they said, I missed that in the notes. Uh, yeah, totally. yeah. Yeah. Oh, and also this is rather important. Actually, as I mentioned, you do live here in Boulder with your lovely wife, Dana, who is amazing in her own right. And your new four month old son, Gray. That's right. We have a newborn baby and it's been incredible, man. It's been one of the, the great experiences of my life for sure. And I'm actually grateful for all this time home right now because I've been getting to spend time with them. And that's been a real gift. It's crazy how quick they change. I, don't, I know you know this all too well, CJ. You, you're, you're a father of, of two, correct? You have two? Just one, but it feels one. like, it feels like two. Totally, of course. <laughs> I shouldn't say that because people, anyone who has more than one kid looks at people who has one one and is just like, you don't know shit. Of course, everybody, yeah. (laughs) But it's also worth mentioning in the intro here that Corey and Keith have been friends and business partners and collaborators for almost, well, 10, 10 years ago, I think we really started doing business in some ways together and, and then, but we've known each other, I guess, probably for 15 years. Yeah. That's um, about right. It's been a long time. And then, so the only thing that I want to add or ask real quick is, is what would you add to that? You know, that bio? Cause I think bios are weird. 
like especially Bios when are weird. you know that somebody's reading something that either you've written or you've had somebody write but what would you add to it like what's not in there god i don't really know something like that's that's a tough question because then i have to start like digging into myself and coming up with i mean exactly yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i don't really know i mean the, that's called at the end of the day at the end of the day you know a bio like that is really just a piece of your marketing material and but the the truth is 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 people like you and i we do this work for for way bigger reasons than just to simply go out and and see something published um that is a huge, huge part of it. That's something that is really, really a, a wonderful thing. And that, that, that illustriousness has never worn off. I still love seeing something in print. So see, love seeing something on the screen. The, at the end of the day, though, creating becomes a part of you when you do it enough. And that's certainly the case for me. Um, and that's something a bio can't really describe. Like a passion to be creative is something that you develop over time and then it just becomes a total addiction in your life. So as far as the bio is concerned, I, I, I probably, <laughs> well, we, not an interesting topic for me. So <laughs> Corey and I oh, have we forgot to time. mention that I was also in the thrift well, selling a refrigerator last month. For instance, what is it that your bio is, is, you know, like you said, it's, it's sort of your uh, placard, if you will, it's your, it's your marketing piece, but what do you, you know, what do you like to do? You know, that's been a, a, a lot of others have sort of said, well, you know, I like, I'm a skier, you know, um, you know, ultimately you're a visual artist um, and it, that's how you make your living. Um, but you also uh, have this amazing pathway going from skateboarding you know, all the way to being a National Geographic photographer. Um, there, there's, there's a lot more to that, I think, than just the, the words on, on this page that I read. <laughs> um, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, go back to like your origin. How did you get to that bio? Um, and we can sure. start there. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, everybody's path is different and broad. Um, certainly a, a, a career as a photographer, filmmaker, whatever it is, if you're working in that, those visual arts, I mean, it's something that takes a long, long period of time. And as the years roll on, a lot of it, you look back on a lot of it and it seems like it was a lot easier than it probably was at the time. But truth be told, you know, to, to actually create a business out of something you love, and in, in my case, that being, you know, working with cameras, it's a it's a serious grind, man. There's so much to figure out. There's no playbook. You have to design it yourself. You have to make a ton of problems, but or a ton of uh, bad decisions, and and then you you luckily make some good ones from time to time, and you sort of expand on that experience over time, build out your peer group. The the end of the day, though, the whole thing is rooted in just the desire to want to do that, to be compelled to do that, and once you get a little bit of a taste of it. You know, when I started doing this full time, I had only a couple of clients that I relied on heavily. Um, you get really close with the people you're working with a lot. In my case, I started out, you know, I did a little bit of work in the skate industry, but I was still working at a full time job. You know, this was something skateboarding has been my passion ever since I was like 11 years old and took that. Where did well you start, Keith? Where did where, just for the listeners, like, where did you, you know, where were you grinding? Yeah, so I grew up in I grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, 
And, you know, that's about an hour and a half south of Boulder where, you know, we all are right now. And uh, it was a fantastic town to grow up in. I, I really look back fondly on all the memories. And a lot of it was because it's a very, it's like a melting pot. Almost nobody is from there. It's a, it's a military town. There's six military bases there. There's the Olympic Training Center. There's a, a lot of uh, nonprofits and big religious organizations. There's uh, like three colleges, one of them being Colorado College, which brings in some liberal arts college that brings people in from all over the country. And so you meet a wide, wide array of people, both from, you know, both ethnically, both economically diverse. It's, it's a great place to grow up. And my time there was fantastic, especially being a skateboarder in the 90s, because it was kind of a movement of art in a lot of ways. It was a lot more, I don't, I don't want to, rebellious is maybe too strong of a word, because it was more kind of a place where you would meet people that were maybe outcasts in their own way could be bad home life could just be someone that was a little more transient and then sometimes meet people that had none of those issues they just like skateboard but it was very different than it is now and it was a movement that a lot came out of if you look at skateboarding sort of globally at that time the amount of music and art and culture and and a lot of people we we see their work everywhere today they're a lot of them now are huge art directors or they're they're people like um like your Shepherd Fairy type folks, all these mm -hmm. people that influentially came out of skate. Spike Jones. Right? Spike Jones, yeah. another great yeah. example. Folks like that. And it, it was just kind of a cool scene to be in at the time. Um, when you read that chicken scratch bio, one of the one of the words you used was subcultures. And skate was very much a subculture back then. I would st say it, it still is. <clears throat> it's definitely a lot more public facing. Um, but you know, I feel like I've always been attracted to subcultures mm. and a lot of my work, even to this day is pretty anchored around something that you could almost classify as a subculture, mm. you know, if storm chasing, you mentioned that that's totally a, subculture. that's exactly what I was thinking. Like that's, yeah. I can see that it's sort of putting that together, like climbing also oh, all the you know, sports, man, the, yeah. 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 There's a language that comes with it as its own vernacular. You know, when someone's into it, just based on the way they're dressed, the way they describe the thing, you know, if it's. Well, how does a storm chaser dress? I took a picture of oh, a lot of pockets, like a lot of, of the helmets and goggles. Oh, like, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like all like the, the classic photographer vest, you know, totally. has like all the different, is that lightning rods? You have yeah. to have a lightning rod or you're just looked at as like a total pussy. You know, you have to be like trying to get the lightning shot. And, uh, but no, I mean, like, a storm chasing is a bad example of sort of like attire, but definitely in skate climbing mountain biking. I mean, just, you, you'll just, you'll just see people hold themselves in a different way. Um, and that's just all part of loving something. You get so in the weeds that you just start speaking an entirely new language and, and you meet these people and right away you have a connection with them. Totally. I mean, cause it's a dedication, the, the jargon, oh. you know, coming up my, myself coming up through skiing more, but you know, we, when we were doing free skier magazine, it was like, if you, published a photo and this all came from skate really like if you published a photo where the where you know the hand was in the wrong place uh, you know you were done as a as a media outlet and the the way people talk and the 
the specific words they use in the specific order more or less, you know, reveals you as either a kook or someone who's actually, you know, sort of paid their dues in, in the, in the sport, whether it's skating or snowboarding or skiing. And it seems so odd, I think for a lot of people on the outside, like what's the big deal? Surfing is another great example, but I think also the training of that, then you can really bring into so many things because it's the overword use of authenticity and it's a respect for a sub- subculture when you're trying to learn or be a part of it or, or document it as you guys both have, that you, when you're coming in from the outside, the research the, the, that is necessary and the time that is necessary to actually be, have the access, the true access to whether it's storm chasing or skateboarding and you know, be allowed to a certain degree to document it in a way that the people who participate in it actually will appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. You can, you can spot an imposter from a mile away, so to speak. And we've all been in those rooms or those scenes or those situations where someone tries to come in and infiltrate. Like I remember, oh my God, this is going back to like the late 90s. I was <clears throat> shooting my first story for Trans World Skate. And I was, I was so excited, man. And I worked you know, months and months on this thing made, you know, at the end of the day, made no money, spent all the money on film and then some, and we were out shooting at some spot in Denver and one of my friends who was, he was filming at the time. And he's like, Hey, some dude reached out to me. He's a photographer out of Vail. He wanted to come out and shoot some photos today. And he, he was basically shooting it for like Getty images. He was just looking for some stock. And this guy showed up and I, I forget his name because I met him again years later and he's actually a really talented photographer. But coming into skate to the snobby scene of skateboarders and I, I hadn't been working in the publishing world at all. You know, I was just like this young punk amongst, the, amongst my friends and then all of a sudden this stranger comes in and I'm shooting things the way that I was trying to emulate, you know, that you're seeing in the magazines and the ads and the way things are done, right? With, strobes everywhere and the angles were sort of specific and really trying to to get that body language that really translates into what the trick is and this guy comes in and he's like literally like this guy was like grinding on on this bar and he put his camera like inches from the guy's board as he was coming down this handrail and like pacing him down to shoot all these photos and i remember watching it at the time being like this guy doesn't know what he's doing this dude isn't like a core skate photographer he wasn't and then I saw his photos later and they were, they were just different. They were cool, but they weren't like what I was trying to do, which is essentially copying, right? I was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is the way the magazine likes. This is what I'm going to shoot. I'm going to basically clone stamp what I think will probably be what their sensibility is. And in a lot of ways, you kind of need to do that, I think. Um, certain magazines have a style, but certainly being young and influenced solely by that, what he was attempting to do here didn't make any sense to me until later when I was a more seasoned photographer. He was just shooting it in his own language. But for me, I was so wrapped up in the subcultureness and the coreness of it that like, we were like, you know, talking shit about him after he left. We're like, I didn't know what he's doing. It was right. Ridiculous. But maybe he did. And, you know, now you guys as, as not geo photographers where you're putting those assignments all the time, essentially like you could, you couldn't possibly be, authentic in every single subculture that you might get an assignment for but then then there's the research and the respect and how you sort of enter into that and then there's you applying your vision to that particular subculture which then sometimes produces work that is actually like you said it's not copy it's not what's in the core magazines but it's another whole perspective like if you have a nat geo photographer come in and try to 
document core skiing, they're going to be able to translate it to a, like a wider audience um, right. because of that seasoned experience. But well, I and mean, truth be told, too, you learn this over the years. Most of the time, magazines are looking for a fresh new look and something that is, in fact, different. And I have a friend, he's a well-known sports photographer, and he used to get work from Golf Digest. And they, they hired him. They basically just hired him because they liked the look of some work that he'd done, like some Olympic photography work. And he met one of the editors at like teaching at a workshop or something, and the guy gave him an assignment. And he told him right up front, he's like, hey, I don't play golf. I've never photographed golf. I, I, it's, it's a sport I know nothing about. So, I, I mean, you're really taking a chance here. He was very upfront with the guy. And the editor said to him, the reason I'm hiring you is because you know nothing about the sport. You may see things that most people just completely glance over because they've become so focused in on the way they perceive golf that we're looking for an outsider's perspective. Sure mm-hmm. enough, he went in and he, he took – pictures that were of things that most people would deem uninteresting like the 150 yard marker or whatever right there's little things I don't play a whole lot of golf but I've played it and he was taking pictures of things that he he was like oh this is weird this must be a piece of the game and he was really getting artistic with it because he's a very talented photographer and bringing in off-camera lighting and being out there at twilight when the guys were mowing the lawn and putting strobes and all of the different like machinery they were using to do this. And he, he went out and he created art and he created it the way he wanted to. And the perspective was so fresh for the magazine that they started hiring him all the time because he was going out and telling a story in a different way. And the pictures were still beautiful and mm. they accompanied the writing correctly. And and it kind of, to me, I remember him telling me this story. This was back in like 2006 or seven, like a, kind of a long time ago. And you hear stories like that and you start to realize that I was told years and years ago that if you want to go be a sports photographer, an action sports photographer, if you want to be a wildlife photographer, like the more you know about the subject, the better, which I agree with. But there's something to be said for giving somebody like Corey an assignment where then this happened where they're like national geographics, like go, go. There's a dinosaur story we're doing. They're excavating some bones. We want you to go down. Yeah. And shoot it. You guys are like, I don't know shit about that. And they're right. like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We want something new. Yeah. Actually, you guys give those examples. Like you must both at, after you get to a certain master level, then that's what starts to happen. Right. Is that you get that call from Nat Geo to go do some, you know, to come in from the outside. I think that's so, can, can you guys give examples of where that's happened? Sure. Well, Corey, you should take the, the lead on this one. That's, I'm stealing your story. No, no, no. I, I mean, actually, because this is about you, man. Don't flip it, bro. <laughs> um, no, I, uh, that, I, I, it's funny. I always joke that, that those assignments came to me because nobody else would take them. <laughs> You know, and I like, and I was just young enough and dumb enough to be like, sure. And not knowing that, you know, it's really hard to create interesting pictures of people wearing khakis who are bent over in, in like, you know, dirt, which has no real vibrant color. Um, and their pants are kind of halfway off their ass with plumber crack. Like those are hard pictures to make, you know, to make that interesting. And I think most people know that um you know seasoned photographers they know that 
And, and I was like, yeah, I can make this try and be, you know, I can try and make this cool. And it was really hard. And, and I think Keith, I'm sure you've had a similar experience. I don't know. I mean, what, what do you think in terms of your assignments? Do you think follows that narrative? Yeah. I mean, I know those wild card narratives or jobs come in from time to time. Yeah. Red Bull's been great about, they'll, they'll give you a shoot that is you're kind of a fish out of water at sometimes. Um, and I love that you go in and all of a sudden you're, you're tasked to shoot some, like I, I did this, we, we did a short film and a photo assignment on like Chris Sharma climbing a redwood tree up in, right. you know, Northern California. And, and it sort of shared the principles of climbing, but it was really more a nature story in a lot of ways, right? It was this whole thing and stories like that, that, that come into play. And you, I feel like when you get a story like that, you lean into the tricks and the things that you know. Like I did an assignment for, for the magazine that was about national parks and it's about climate change in national parks. And I approached it and shot most of the photos with off-camera lighting because I was going to places that had been photographed beautifully for years and years. I mean, you're going to Glacier National Park and of course you're looking for issues and you're looking for stories that tell a story, but then you have to kind of go in and be like, how do I do this with a new voice? You know, how do I do this in a way that doesn't look like some of the stunning photos that have come out from this place over the years that would still tell that story to some degree. And I, I think that the best thing you can do as a photographer is to go on and kind of break the mold you know, like if you were to go, if you were to get an assignment shooting swimming, like how do you do that differently? What, what's the approach? Is there, is there a completely different sensibility that you bring into this place that makes it, that makes it a brand new photograph? And that's, that's the big challenge of trying to do something original. It's, the, it, it's doing something original is it's a terrifying space to work in and it's a very exciting space to work in as well as I'm certain you know all too well. That's what, when you get a job that you're nervous going into, to me, those are some of the best jobs because you know there's a lot more on the line and it, it pressures you to rise to the occasion and you're doing all this additional research that you normally wouldn't do and you're getting out in the field and you're hating every picture you shoot. And I mean, I've been on assignment with you, Corey, and I, your process is so much about hating what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> hating everything. People are like, I want to be a national geographic oh, photographer. And you're like, no, a high pressure place to work. But I will say at the, I, I remember the first job we did together was Antarctica 2012 it was a burly expedition. And, you know, I, I like to just spend time. I, uh, what quiets my brain down is when I get out and I'm working. So I like to shoot pretty heavily and things like that. And you had a fantastic ability to shoot when you knew the moment was good and you knew the moment was right. I think it ignited something inside of you because out of boredom, I'll go out and shoot when it's high noon and the light sucks. I'm like, oh, I'll just go digging. <laughs> right. <laughs> but <laughs> Do I, some spade work, you know, and it's and it, a lot of times nothing pans out there. The sensibility to identify that this is the time. This is when you rise to the occasion. This is when you get to work. And then your tray at the end of the day was fantastic for that story. It was beautiful. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that I admire most of, about you is that ability to go shoot all the time. One of the things that Keith does that, um, and one of the reasons his body of work is so large is because you, 
you know, you go out and shoot and you'll do things like Boulder Safari where you're like, you're going to get up at 4am and go drive around roads that you know, like the back of your hand and just take beautiful wildlife shots. Whereas to me that I would, I would just like, I would never ever do that. And, and, but then I find myself jealous of the body of work because you are willing to go out and create in environments that you're familiar with. It doesn't have to be new. It doesn't have to be fresh and different what what's new and fresh and different is your take on it every time which to me is um that's a really special quality that actually makes you a much better photographer than i am specifically when you go out on assignment because you're 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 always practiced but you you bring up a good point that you know you're talking about shooting skateboarding and you're talking about you know lighting it the way that it was sort of expected to be lit and I have a book on my coffee table. It's called steel like an artist. And I read it all the time because I think there's something really beautiful about this idea that you're borrowing things and moving it in another direction. Right? So nothing is truly original. You took skateboard photography and completely upended the climbing photography world. How did you, how did that happen? Why did that happen? Like where did that idea come from? I mean, when that, first off, thanks for, the, you said some really nice things and I really appreciate from and a, a lot of it too, is I, I think I still operate like a hobbyist in a lot of ways mm -hmm. when I'm out taking pictures to simply to shoot. A lot of that is because I find that to be a pretty therapeutic stasis for myself. I'm totally. My brain's quite that hunter kind of situation you know where you're looking for something to be creative with and and uh and a lot of those pictures they're, they're not really they're good for stock photography at best i feel like that, that kind of thing keeps me sharper though so when i am absolutely working I, my instincts are, are sharper and so a lot of it for that is is me um you know i i never advertise myself as an athlete i have to do athletic things to keep up with the people i'm working with a lot but at the end of the day you know i'm a camera guy and so an athlete is constantly training because they need to, for one, they love it. They love the thing they're doing. But secondly, they need to be physically fit and ready for whatever presents itself. And I think as a photographer, cameraman of any time, kind, that, at least for me, I find to be extremely beneficial. Mm -hmm. And then moving on to the climbing industry, I mean, when I, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> When I entered into the climbing industry, for me, it was all relatively incidental. I had kind of fallen in love with climbing. A friend introduced it to me, and it was a couple of years in that I, I didn't even take a camera for like a good couple of years when I went climbing. It was just something I liked to do from a selfish standpoint and, uh, and was really enjoying it. Well, when I did start to bring my camera out with me, like everything, it started to kind of take over that time that I used to enjoy climbing. Now I was more focused on getting a shot and because the only action sports language i kind of spoke was using off-camera lighting i sort of brought that approach into to shooting climbing that way and it, it was initially friends of mine that were submitting the pictures like sending them to magazines or whoever sponsor they had maybe a shoe sponsor or something and these editors and, and these art buyers were were seeing pictures that they, I don't think they'd seen before. I don't think that it was better photography. I just think it was different mm -hmm. and, and different can often be translated as better if you're used right. to seeing something over and over again. And so this style that I, 
had sort of just brought over was something that I just pulled from another industry that I'd learned from that industry. And the editors in the climbing world started to respond to that, which only gave me more motivation to continue doing that and to try to push it a little further. And to be truthful too, in a lot of ways, um, I've always just enjoyed shooting with off-camera lighting because you can kind of control the environment, the look, you get to build the mood. And at the end of the day, when you're shooting pictures, I think that when you're really trying to execute something that you're proud of and that you hope someone will look and feel something from, you're trying to execute an emotion and a mood. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Jay Maisel has a fantastic quote, which is photog- taking pictures it, what what is what is the quote? I just had it at my disposal. It's uh, photography is a it's a, it's emotion. You're trying to capture an emotion, really. And I, I I can't believe I don't have that quote at my fingertips. I just wrote it down yesterday. Long story short, that's that's what you're trying to do. And when you bring in lighting, you can actually do that. You can take a high noon situation and all of a sudden make it feel a little crisper, or more dynamic, or vibrant. So I started doing that a lot in the climbing world. And it was also a great way to, to, to find my footing in that industry. And I think at the time that meant so much because I was living a hand to mouth kind of thing. You know, when you're, you've, you've been there, anyone who started off in the industry, it's lean initially. And if somebody responds to something, you're like, all right, emphasize that, emphasize that, emphasize that. What, um, so this is, this is kind of an offshoot. I mean, your, your photography is really technically near perfect as, as close to perfect as, as like, as really anybody I know, you know, and, and, and it has this very distinct, sharp, crisp look. It's really just beautiful imagery. And it's something that, you know, every time I go out in the field, I try to, I'm like, how would Keith shoot this? <laughs> but, but it, 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 there's something about it. And I'm curious about this. I've always, I've always wanted to know, um, you were raised, you were raised pretty religious, right? Or in a religious household, right? right. Absolutely. And do you think, do you think that upbringing, um, aimed your, or, or crafted the way you view the world in a way that you were looking for sort of a perfect representation of in some ways, and I'm not saying you believe this now, but in some ways creation. Yeah. You know, that's a, I, I just don't know. I've always been curious about that. Yeah. I've never tr- put those two things together. There may be some truth in what you're saying. Um, I certainly, you know, and I'm so grateful for the way I was raised. It really yeah. gave me a whole values and scruples and 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 a way to you know and a work ethic a Fuck. work ethic i mean i offer that work ethic comes from my mother and father i mean my mom is first generation american um my dad came from you know a, a blue collar household they they both kind of grew up in new jersey my mom immigrated over they both grew up in new jersey that's where they met where's your mom and from she's from glasgow scotland okay originally. yeah and she was pretty young when her she's the youngest of four and they moved her over when she was, she was pretty young, maybe like two years old or something. But her, her oldest brother, I think is like 10 years older than her. And so they, a lot, it was a very Scottish family to say the least. And, you know, first generation Americans, man, they got the work ethic thing down. And so did my father's side of the family. And so 
they blindly moved us from New Jersey to Colorado when I was two years old or something like too young to even really remember. And they hit the hard reset button. And my dad worked, you know, three jobs for the first two years. Like he was a dishwasher at one of the military bases. He, he worked as a security guard at a, a uh, used car dealership. He delivered pizzas, just whatever he had to do to provide. And you see, and then, you know, you see that work ethic. It's just part of the house. And my mom was just this fantastic. Everything was, she, we always felt taken care of, you know, and, um, the, the beautiful thing about being raised in a household like that is that that, and you just hard work is all around you. So it just kind of just sort of, you know, sinks into you and you just assume that's just how, how things work in the world. And I've always loved working. You feel accomplished when you're actually busy with your mind, busy with your hands. I think that's why when I got into photography, it was such an easy space to get lost into because it's never done. There's no finish yeah. line, you know? Yeah. And, and especially with digital, you know, going from, from film into digital, digital is one thing. In the digital space, you can spend more time going through and editing your work and culling it down and that whole process, you can shoot heavier handed. And it's just, I like when there's no ceiling. The feeling of no ceiling is something that I, I really, really enjoy. And I think I'm kind of deviating from your question, so I'll try to bring it back around. But I, I've always been attracted to things that I was sort of self-reliant on, like mm -hmm. skateboarding, rock climbing. I played basketball for a little bit back in, you know, in uh, in junior high, and I and I, I remember not enjoying it so much because it was such a team sport that I loved the game, but I, I liked to rely on myself for my failures and my successes. I don't know what that is about me or what that says about me, but those are the things that I've typically gravitated to. Mm -hmm. And I, I definitely, you know, going to church and being raised in a, in a household that, you know, we would be at church every Sunday and sometimes even on like a Wednesday night and that, that kind of thing helped me help develop who I am today. You know, to be committed to something, I think, is a very, very good asset. And um, yeah, I don't know how much I think I've kind of breezed away from your original question. No, I mean, Got it's me in the weeds thinking about other things. I No, you're answering it. I, th I think it's the point is like the way you were brought up helped color the way you express yourself through photography. And it's and it's not necessarily it's more an exploration that I've always been curious about with you because I feel like um, much for the better, you do see the world with a, a, a profoundly optimistic lens. And I think your photography in some ways reflects that it is not, um, you know, it's not necessarily, it can be, it can be gritty in terms of it is fucking hardcore and hard to get access, but you craft something that is deeply refined even in the grittiest, shittiest of circumstances. Whereas other people, myself included, I think are lazier and they're like, okay, cool. I'm just going to take the picture. Um, so I was just curious if there was a, if there's a, a link between that, you know? And sure. I, no, thank you. That kind of reset me back to the, <laughs> you know, one thing I'd never have seen your work as lazy. You, you <laughs> translate things so much differently. Like you have a, I mean, when you look at your portrait photography, it's, it's, 
beautiful. And you, you, I think you take psychology into your work in a lot of ways as well. I think you're, the message you're trying to deliver is um, you're trying to do something that's profound and is going to make people think. And so I, you go in with that sensibility in mind. You're like, okay, if this needs to be shocking, how can it be shocking? If this needs to be beautiful, how can it be beautiful? You're very multifaceted in the way you shoot. It's something I really deeply appreciate. But circling back to your question, now that I've got it back in my mind, I don't know what it is about. I like the picture to feel organized. And yeah. I like when things feel like they're placed right or the lights coming in, in a way that that really draws your attention and is bringing you into that, to that moment in space. And I mean, the pictures you're seeing of mine too, or what's been edited out and cold right. out, you know, I shoot a ton of garbage. Like we all, we all do when you're actually out there, like, you know, grinding, but yeah, I, I don't know if that's influenced from my background. I think my personality is definitely more one that's optimistic. And I think that optimism Mm -hmm. sort of floats its way into my pictures. I was raised in a house that was brightly optimistic as well. That was something that helped me a lot. You never felt like you weren't loved. It was a good, it was a fantastic place. camaraderie, mm -hmm. And it was very family oriented. And it's possible that when I started going out into the, into the photography world, that maybe that did glom on to me, but it was also a lot of the influences of who I was looking at originally totally. in my work being like, wow, David Munch's stuff is so perfect. And then trying to go find that perfection and extract it on my own side of yeah. things. But um, I don't know, I'm hardwired that way. Like if I'm shooting a scenic photo, if there's just a little stick or something horrible in the way, I, I get ADD with it. I get like really it will bother me. I have to yeah. find a workaround to make that composition different. But the funny thing is, is I've, you know, I've got a massive collection of coffee table books, photography books that I, you know, I love pouring through. And you, some of these photographers that I deeply admire, you look at their work and it is gritty and it is, it, it's compositionally, it's, it's extraordinary, but it's not a composition that you would necessarily categorize <clears throat> maybe beautiful would work in a lot of ways, but it's just more in your face. It's even complicated. It's, it's complicated. Well, even if it's a photo, like, you know, one of my favorite photographers is, is a Atiba Jefferson mm -hmm. because he can shoot so much, so many different styles. When you look at his music photography, he'll, he'll go to a, a show in LA, you know, modern day show in LA and the pictures will feel like that was like a punk rock concert in the, the eighties or nineties, you know, it has that same raw feel on camera flash, just the way it's shot and organized and the, and the reaction that he was getting out of the subjects and everything like that. There's something that I love about that type of work. Um, yeah. Just these people like David Gutenfeld, these people that can just naturally find these, these gestury moments and these compositions that are hidden and you have to look for them. David Allen Harvey, folks like that, that they, they find these different tunnels and windows and ways into executing the message that makes you feel like you're amongst a group, that you were there witnessing it alongside of them. And that type of photography I deeply, deeply admire. Um, it's my work generally is I'll, I'll punish myself looking for something that maybe has more of an aligned 
you know, composition. Um, mm-hmm. But it makes me yearn for that other type of photography that I don't necessarily do. And there's times right. when I'm given the opportunity to go out and like maybe execute on that. But usually I end up falling back into like, how can we make this look really pretty? <laughs> well, it's, I mean, one of my favorite photos of yours, and it's, I, I, I remember texting you as soon as I saw it on Instagram, <clears throat> um, is uh, Nick, when you're storm chasing and it's blurry and he's running and his legs up and it's like this very real moment. And for me, it was one of the reasons I loved it is because it was such a departure from, uh, you know, the vast majority of your other work. Um, but it just feels like you're there. You feel like you're getting blown over in a storm. Right. And, um, and I just love with your work, there is a variety and certainly more recently, you know, you've come from skateboarding to climbing to, to natural history. And now there seems to be this element of like strong editorial work too. So it's, um, it's not to say that you fall only in one category and all of your work is perfect and sublime although a lot of it is, um, you, you know, you, you do span all of those genres as well, but it's, I just, I'm just always curious about where people, um, how they, how they come to the place of visual representation that they do. And, you know, and I don't want to make this too much about photography. I, you said something earlier as well that I'm just curious if it ever, if you ever think about it in this moment right now, um, I didn't know your mom was first generation. I didn't know she was an immigrant. Do you ever think like in these moments, in these sort of troubled times, do you ever like think about being the son of an immigrant? Yeah, I absolutely do. I think about it because I'm the product of that brave move. You know, I, I actually, I watched the, I don't know if you've ever watched the show master of none. Yeah. But on season one, they did this show and it was all about, a season Zari and, and forgive me, but I forget his, his other, his buddy on the show, but they're both immigrants. One's from China. He, he's from um, India, I believe. And they do a whole episode on their parents and they keep doing these flashbacks of, of who they were. And they're asking them questions like, what was life like when you were a kid? What did you do for fun? And they're like, fun. Fun is like a new thing. Fun is something that you got to be <laughs> the beneficiary of. And it shows them as their, as their kids, you know, like working and all this other type of thing. And I, and in that show, it said something, and I just rewatched this a couple nights ago. There was a line in there that really struck a chord with me. And it was what Aziz is like, after they learn all this things, these different things about their folks, he's like, man, I bet every immigrant that's coming to this country has a crazy story about what it was like to come into a foreign place, try to find acceptance, especially if you don't speak the language and come in and find your way and assimilate amongst people because people are naturally outcasted, right? If you don't speak a language specifically, now granted my parents, my mom came from Scotland, right? but coming in and embedding yourself and dude, that's like one of the great adventures a human being can do is move to a foreign location and hit the hard reset button and be like, we are in survival mode. Like, let's figure this out. And I think that as as the beneficiary of that from a second generation American side, I didn't have to go through all of that hardcore toil and those steps that were made, but I did get to witness them to a certain degree in the sense that like you have to work hard. So I got to extract some of it from me. But I think about people that immigrate over to, to this country because I live here, but certainly to anywhere, what an incredible move 
that is to do. And some people are just wired that way. Like Matthew Paley, a mutual friend of ours, you know, a national geographic photographer, you know, he and his family, they have two, two boys and the, the four of them have lived in like five different countries and that's, and they're like Turkey, you know, Mongolia, um, India, Portugal, India. Yeah. Like yeah. countries where you are a foreigner and, um, and you can tell they're just addicted to that too. They love it. Their kids speak all these languages. They're extraordinary. Um, they make it work. Their personalities just work. I think in those, in those realms. Um, and, uh, there's something that's one of the great adventures you can do in modern times is, is to move to a different, to move around into different cultures and like actually embed yourself. And I don't think people think enough about how difficult a move like that is, especially nowadays when it's divisive and they're like telling people, you know, like in, in this current administration about the harshness of immigration and things. And most you have to are, have that, uh, that experience of not, being a native speaker of a language, you know, when you're trying to express yourself um, to, to have any appreciation of that, like, because your personality is not really your personality. Like you can't fully express yourself when you're in a foreign land dropped in and the perception of you um, is, you know, you're sort of a simple, you're a very simple person. Right. If you've had that experience, right? Like you're the, you're the foreign guy who sort of can participate, but not fully. And that does strip you down as a human being to like really find yourself and other ways of communicating too. So I agree with that. You know, I don't think there's enough appreciation about that because not too many people have had that experience. Like you have to drop yourself into that to even have an appreciation for you know, what's around us in this country is a melting pot where you're speaking to somebody who's come from a different country and is trying to, they're not, you don't really know them. Right. Yeah. You they never are what they, right. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. If you, the, if you can't articulate, if you could be the smartest person in your country and if you move to a place and you don't speak the local language, you're right. You are immediately categorized as simple and, and, um, get that, language the ability to speak a language is is one of the greatest ways where you could actually you know find yeah. roots and be amongst i mean you both have had this experience on assignment i'm sure i mean oh in, my God. you know where your your camera then in part becomes part of how you're communicating but you know when you're in those social situations and you don't understand everything that's being said and you're trying to participate and you're, you are sort of, you, you're different, your personality becomes different. Like maybe you become more humorous, maybe you're more, pe- you know, it's, it's not who you are here in the way that we're right. speaking right now. And I think that's a, you know, that's a huge part of it, like the language and, and like you said, that adventure of being dropped into a place where you have to, you know, sort of make your way in a, without the, the benefit of that language. Right. You have to adapt. I can't tell you how many, just looking back at my career as a photographer too, and some of the jobs you, you know, you, you accept and take on going into places where you are a fish out of water, so to speak, and having to adapt and figure it out all to do even just your job, like to move this conversation kind of back into the creative space. Because certainly if you are coming in from another country, you have to be adaptive 
and make it work to the best of your ability. And certainly in this field that, you know, I work in, Corey works in, you have to adapt constantly to different variables. Um, and, and those variables could be harsh conditions, loud cities, um, even personalities you're paired up with to get the job done. Um, and certainly ecosystems and environments where you're kind of like, dude, I don't know how to live in the jungle. Like this is terrible 24 seven or whatever it is. Like you have to figure out a way to, to get through it, do your job, make it work. And I think that in this industry, you, you, it's, it's a non-studio, non-stable environmental occupation you, you have to really, really get into the adventure side of it. You have to be flexible and it's got to be something you like what, if you don't like it. What do you think is the, I mean, you just said a lot of things. We're, we're doing this at a very interesting time. And the reason the podcast started is because it started from home is because we're all locked in home right now. And, you know, we totally want to have you on at a time when it we can kind of go into bigger other stuff, but I mean, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask in this moment, you just brought up adaptability and how do you think our industry, your industry, your artistry um, and your life is going to adapt to this new world um, that's being shaped by coronavirus and, and this pandemic? I mean, there's massive question marks right now as to yeah. how, I mean, I, I was I was uh, talking to somebody the other day, and they brought up a good point. That they're like this, this pandemic could it could be a total resurgence of super savers, like people like right after the Great Depression, right? Where people right. were like completely resistant to spend money. They were a lot more guarded with their finances because when you when you recognize the fragility of a situation, you go into a triage survival state to pretty much figure out, well, okay, I'm not, that's not going to happen again. I'm going to make some kind of a provision where I can avoid that. And if that happened economically in the U S I mean, you and I, we work in the service industry pretty much, right? We yeah. work, we work with editorial magazines. We work for advertising agencies. We work directly with marketing groups of people that sell things. And we are a service that we go in and we help to tell stories that, you know, at the end of the day are sort of beneficial for someone that, that hired you to do it. And I love it, man. I love working in advertising. It's so creatively fun. I love working in the editorial industry. However, those are jobs that are reliant on people spending money and keeping that, that ecosystem alive through, through spending. Right now, things, it could take like years before things reset to the way they were two months ago. Right. It's impossible to say. I mean, outside of getting information from third party sources and my tiny bit of experience, I'm not really sure. I'm trying to err more on the, the uh, positive side of things, which is, you know, for better or worse. But yeah, I, I don't know, man. I, I go back and forth in my mind about what things are going to look like on the backside of this. Um, I don't think we're going to have a true reset until there's an actual vaccine, something mm -hmm. that people know, like, okay, I got it, but it's fine. You know, that's right. when people are going to really start to feel comfortable again. But right. it also goes to show like this could happen. This could so easily happen again. I think it, people are going to walk out of here with a lot of trauma, whether or not mm -hmm. they, you know, some, some worse than others. But um, I think for the work we do, it's going to, it, it will be 
slightly different. We've been re- living in this like incredible weird ecosystem for like the, the social media world and all the rest of it. We've been, we, we've really gotten a lot of great opportunities based on what the hell, what a healthy economy look like. And, uh, and now that it's completely leveled, dude, I have no idea, man. Do you, I mean, do you, are you scared about it at all? I'm oddly not. I haven't had any fear this entire time, aside from worrying about if my parents were to, to get this or Dan's yeah, parents, yeah, or people yeah. that I love. From that side of things, I've certainly had concerns. But from where my job, what my job will look like on the other side of this, I'm not, I haven't had any fear there because to be honest, this right now, I feel like I'm a little busier than I'd like to be because I'm doing, doing a lot of, you know, like online teaching and and also putting together pitches and all these different things that you kind of have to do for the, for the job and also taking on opportunities that make sense right now. Mm -hmm. But truth be told, there's so much of my career that I hope to tap into that. I, I, I I haven't yet. Like I I Mm -hmm. really want to get into doing exhibits i want to get into books i want to get more into taking it's so much of the work that both you and i do you go out on an assignment you shoot for two months on one thing it's called down to the necessity for whatever the publication is be it an ad campaign or be it an editorial story and then you're sitting on this stockpile of stories and content and all these different things that i mean dude i know people and i know you do as well a photographer that might do like a thing a year Mm -hmm. and then they just go out and they push that thing and they turn it into live events and they turn it into exhibits and books and stuff and a huge part of me looks at that and respects it i just don't carve the time out for those things right but this is an opportunity to maybe be creative in a new way I mean, what, what is your blueprint? Like, what is your goal path? I mean, I, I know a little bit, but I also am curious if you want to say, I, I, you know, sure. what, what, what is your trajectory? Like, what do, you, what do you want to do? Where do you want to be in 5, 10, 20 years? Right. I mean, because I think, and the reason I think this is an important question is because you have reached the, sorry to interrupt you, you've reached sort of the, the pinnacle or the upper echelon of photography. And I think a lot of people go, oh, you, you're a National Geographic photographer. Like, that's it. That's, you know, you've done it. And, and I know for myself, that just isn't true. And so I'm curious to hear your take on that and what you want to do. I, I view you as seeing this as a, as a rung on a ladder towards something bigger. I mean, it, it really is. I think it is a rung. I feel we talked earlier about this is an occupation with no ceiling, right? Mm-hmm. This is an occupation where there's no such thing as claustrophobia. Like you could move in a three-dimensional space, take your, take your business to take your talent or your creativity in such a multi, multi-genre thing. I mean, my, my five, 10, 20 year goals, I, I'm, constantly and it was only probably about seven eight years ago that i started to really be goal oriented mm-hmm. telling myself okay in two years this is what you should attempt to try to have happen and it's great when you point your you know your um point your barrel at a nice high trajectory because even if you come in a little bit lower than that not making lateral moves has always been important to me 
as a creative, you want to push yourself, which requires a tremendous amount of failure, a tremendous amount of sticking your neck out there, and a tremendous amount of things not working out. And you get conditioned and callous to that being an okay space to be in. Mm-hmm. And right now, you and I are slightly in this together in a lot of ways because we're trying to develop things together as a team, which has been great. Um, I'm ho- I want to do more things that are any project I get into in the future, I just want these things to be amplified and to be executed better. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel like when you're constantly go, 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 and you're like one job to the next, to the next, you don't really give a previous project the right amount of space to do what you probably should be doing with it, which is reverberating it out there a little bit more. If it's meaningful, if it's something that means something to you, or it's a message you feel like people need to hear, I'll typically just jump right on to the next project right away. I'd love the production side of things. Whereas the post-production side of things, be that in photography or filmmaking or anything, that is an entirely different execution. It is a totally different art. It's a totally different level of energy and requirement. And I love the way I feel when I'm behind a camera or even editing pictures and basically do that whole creative process to me is a place where my emotions feel good. I get pretty stimulated from that. Mm-hmm. As soon as you have to take that into the space of, of meetings and minutia and, and working with a, a bigger team to make sure things are being done. It's like, how's the PR? What's the marketing look like? Where are we at in the post-production on this? That stuff is so draining to my personality mm-hmm. that, you know, like my wife, she's great at that kind of stuff. She, her brain is works in a completely different organizational pattern than me. So mm-hmm. she has strengths where I have, where I have weaknesses. And, um, and so executing something largely is so exhausting, but it's something that when the product is done and we've all been a little bit of a part of this when I, you know, I, I published a small book a few years back and it just felt good. It was like, mm-hmm. Oh my God, but you I want to do something bigger and bigger. You feel great when it's all said and done or when you finish a film or whatever it is. I hope that moving forward, my goals are to try to execute things on a, on a broader level and to try to make the project mean a little bit more. The problem is, and CJ mentioned this kind of at the beginning, you get addicted to being like, on the road. Okay, I'm going to go to a new, (laughs) yeah, dude, the road is, it's reactive. People, you see cool stuff, you're exposed to things and you're out of your comfort zone, which gives you this nice little piece of a, you know, little purge of adrenaline. It's It's great. You go out on these, I mean, we have jobs that don't, It's not like you're like, okay, you're going to go to New York City and tour the restaurant scene. It's like, no, dude, you're getting dropped off in the Amazon and you're going to get, you're going to meet some fixer you've never met. And he's going to take you down some weird river and you're going to live in (laughs) with this weird community. And you're going to do that stuff, man, that changes you as a person. And once you know, it's there, you said that too, you know, like you become so good at reacting to unknown scenarios and when you're creating, when both of you are out there creating, you're, you're actually, you're, you've been through cycles, you've been through, you know, those, those different reps, if you will. And then you get better and better at reacting quickly in, in the right way. And it, it, it doesn't require to what you were saying before, Keith, like the, okay, I'm going to have to spend the next 60 days, like sitting at a desk, grinding through 
you know, the post or the building of the business or whatever it might be. It, when you have the ability that you have as artists to build something so beautiful in the reactive moment. And it's like, that even goes to like packing, getting on the plane, getting off like the transportation aspects, like all of that stuff is hard, really, really difficult for some people, but you've been through it so much that there is a buzz that comes with that where you're like, I'm in it, I'm doing it. You're going from one thing to the next <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then it's over and you sort of come back and it's when you have to come back to like normal life, you're like, this is like sort of fucking lame. Feels you know? like it's, yeah, sure. And now I have to like work, you know, right. and even though that is all tons of work being out there but it's, it's a different type yeah it's a it's a re, I, I i just keep saying that but it i feel like it's a reactive thing like once you have enough experience where you can you can be in those modes and you're you are just going from one thing to the next but you're doing great work then when you come back and you have to sit and just sort of grind and focus on something to make to, to like you said to sort of pull that into being a book or into a business or into a speaking tour or whatever might be on the other side of it like you're also sort of like, well, somebody else can do this. Like right. I, I'm the only one that can do what I do, which is what, and, and there's truth to that. There's tons of truth to that, to, to being an artist, like both of you are, that there are other people that as producers or editors or, you know, fixers and that can, can take your work and pull it. So I don't think there's anything personally wrong with, with that, with being like, well, you know, I do this part. Right. I do it awesome. Um, the, the, why we're talking about this is because right now we're all being forced to be that back end to a certain degree, which is, I mean, it's a moment of, of pause. It's difficult though. It's like, you can't, that ADD, like the next plane, the next cab, the next, you know, it's a, it's a different experience. Well, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, a lot of this can be executed with a good team. You can say this is the goal and hire the right people to, to execute on your behalf. But a lot of it becomes so personal that you kind of do, like if you're trying to create something big, like we're making a show or we're making it, your sensibilities matter for the output to the point where sometimes you can only hire people to do so much before your involvement becomes sort of a critical component within that. Um, like, dude, I've been, I have a, an, I, a, an idea for a, a scripted show that I've been half-assing for like years now. I've got this word doc that I'll, sometimes I'll get motivated and I'll just like go in and I'll chew on it a little bit and I'll put some stuff down and then something else comes in and it just gets backward. So I've got like 50 easily 50 things that are just constantly on the back burner, just sort of simmering forgotten. You know, it's, but that's it, also, it, it's a problem I have actually is, is full execution. But is it, I mean, is it a problem or is it part of the process? Because I mean, and I, I raised that question. Well, yeah. Well, is it a problem or is it part of the process? It's a great question. I think a lot of times it, well, I think it's both. I think it can be part of the process when if something's ready and your motivation is completely invested into that thing, that, mm -hmm. that probably is when it's time for that to right. happen. Because when you run out of motivation, everything starts to suffer immediately anyway. So that's a, it's a great question. It's very thought provoking because 
a lot of that stuff that is sitting there unfinished, yeah, it's because I kind of ran out of gas or I got so distracted. Or right attention. It's, or it's marinating in the way that it needs to to full to, to come to full completion later when it's ready. You know, I mean, yeah, I can't tell you how many people tell me, oh, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. And and for so long, the process of sitting down and even putting pen to paper or in this case typing it has been a painful proposition. And, um, you know, this moment of coronavirus and this time that we have, this big sigh, this big uh, global moment of silence, all of a sudden, you know, I'm writing. And, and that, that's not to say that I'm going to finish a book in this window. And it's not even to say that I'll finish the book, period. What it is to say is that has been part of the process to come to the table. And then that writing in and of itself might prompt something that then you and I go out and work on together as a script or you see what I mean like I think I think so often we people like us and I'll say this for myself put so much pressure on the idea of closing and completion when in fact the things that stay unfinished can be part of the creative process that pushes us towards closure in other areas certainly I totally agree with that but just to counter that there is also every deadline we've ever yes. been a part of requires that like, you need to get this shit done. Totally. You have to fuck, you have to roll up those sleeves now, man, and finish. Because there's, there's something, something I've learned over the years as well. An idea is such an easy space to live in. Totally. When it's a fantasy, there's no problems. Everything is working out well. There's it's no hurdles. Line. Yeah, there's, there's no hurdles. Like it's an idea and you can see it finished and all that. It's not, it's like, it's like moving furniture from your house. You're like, all right, dude, we're going to get the couch. We're going to get this. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, there's like four days of little things here that I don't right. want to do. And that's like a big project is, is so much that way mm -hmm. in that the big ideas come out first. Mm-hmm. And then there's all of that minutia that just starts to weigh you down. And that's a lot of, that's when a lot of people gas out or they're like, right. you know, what? I'm going to get distracted. I'm going to move into this. So I think so much of what you're saying totally has merit here when, you know, if, it, if, if something is kind of, if you've tapped out for a certain reason, it's maybe because it just simply isn't time and that idea isn't ready. Mm -hmm. And there's also that other bit where it's like, no, do you, you need to, you need to you have to do, do. Yeah. You so I think make. it's a combination of both um, to make things to make things well. Because I guarantee you talk to anybody who's ever done anything great in that whole swamp side. And that's the thing you you'll romanticize past that once it's done and it's yeah. executed and you feel good. But certainly at the time when you're like wading through the garbage of all that, that stuff. So there's a, there's a quit. personality aspect to that in terms of building teams. Like you said, I mean, there, there are people who are really good at the, at the first part, taking an idea, getting people excited, you know, and then see like you said, you run out of steam. Like it's it. You need to have a team of people who are really good that can take the idea and the initial sort of part of it and do the, the carrying wooden, you know, chopping water. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. You, it's that's you, CJ. No, no. no. no CJ's great at that. I mean, like you are an ideas person. And thankfully, you have a great team around you that can help you, 
you know, create stuff. Um, and, and I, but you're, you're absolutely right, Keith, that there is an element of just doing that has to happen. And when you're alone, sort of in, I mean, you're a, you're a sole proprietor, you are a lone operator and it's hard to take big ideas and bring them to completion. But I mean, do you think that's the big in this moment right now? Um, is, has that been your, your North star is just to make, just to keep doing, you know, it was for the first week and a half. And then you burned out. No, (laughs) I I wish it was that actually, because then it, then certain little opportunities would, would crop up, right. Where someone's like, Hey, we could do, do this little, do this little at home video for us. Or, Hey, let's do some curriculum. Let's do a, let's do a workshop or, Hey, we've got a call out for some images. Here's some, here's some easy ad money or some whatever. And you start getting into the weeds on those things. And all of a sudden you lose all of your motivation. I mean, I've been trying to make a big photo book for years now and I'll get fired up, man. And I'll be writing down the stories and reliving things, looking at the archive, getting immersed, remembering details of stories. And then you get distracted and all of those thoughts that were really good and emotional, they're gone because you reprioritize something else. I think there's something to be said for just simply not, I have a hard time saying no to things. It's just always been the way I think it's just coming from a, a background of, of, you know, being in a household where there's a hard work ethic and, and, and you, you do what you have to do. And sometimes there's an element of survival in there. And certainly starting a business where every opportunity mattered, you know, the, mm-hmm. the further along you get in your career, it's, it's, I think if you really want to do something big, you're going to just have to forego a ton of that or have a team in place that can handle it for the most part. Right. And, you know, and right now I, I have a good help. It, like I've, you know, I just, I have one employee, Angie, who, you know, and, and she's fantastic. She does so much of the, of, of that kind of stuff, but a lot of it, the way I've organized my archives, the way I've organized my business, it's like, dude, if I were to die, like a lot of it would just be a total train wreck. Like it's not, I'm not an, I'm not a systems guy. It's not how my personality works. You know, I it's, it works in my brain, but you can't just hand it off. So I'm stuck in a lot of ways um, with certain things, but there's this, there's gotta be that moment where you're like, you know what? Nothing else matters, but this one thing, get through it and then move on to the, to whatever the next thing is. But it sucks when you've got a lot of creative, fiery ideas and then a really great opportunity presents itself. Yeah, of totally. Of course you're going to back burner. Of course. Yeah. And that happens constantly. And I think that's the big roadblock is, is being like, okay, how dedicated am I? Or am I going to like relent and be like, yeah, I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Too too busy to grow. Sometimes I think it's the you know. Or you are growing, but you're maybe not growing in this way that you've envisioned. Well, you're growing. You're you're expanding. You're not going deeper, right? And I right, think the deep, like the you know, you're you're just covering more ground. And I think that's a problem for people in the creative fields in general. Is that yes, I'll take that opportunity. Yes, I'll take that opportunity. And Burkhardt said something. Chris Burkhardt, another one of the founders on his podcast, said something about you know, saying no. And um, I think it's a, it's a hard lesson for us to learn. I think, especially speaking about that in this moment where so many people need to say yes to everything. I think there's a moment of desperation, but there was also a, a, 
anytime we are in those moments, there's a lot of information about potentially how we can be more purposeful uh, with our path forward um, and, and how we can potentially be of more benefit to ourselves and others by not uh, acting out of fear and rather acting with purpose and intention. Right. Right. No, I, I absolutely agree. And a lot of that is just focus yeah. being determined and, and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to tap out on that other thing because it doesn't yeah. matter, you know, but, but uh, I don't know. I think, I think that's just part of the struggle. And those are also to be clear, those are pretty good problems to have. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's not like you're, solely dependent on this one thing that has to work. So in a lot of ways, gripe session is kind of lame on my behalf because, you know, it's the fact that you can, that there are still decisions to be made is a really good asset to have. I don't think it's lame. I think, you know, all we can do is speak the truth to our experience, you Mm -hmm. know, and it like, I I think it's, I think it's good. Conrad did a good job um, on another podcast of of referencing how this will affect so many other people. But but we also it's not lame to to uh, examine and be you know very present with how this affects us. And and um, so so you know, griping gripe sessions aren't a bad thing. I know you are a you're a very um, this is another question that I've I've always had. You're a really positive person. And we've talked about your optimism. Um, you have a hard time saying anything bad about anybody. You just don't do it out of principle. And I've, and I've always admired that about you because I'm one to like, you know, get emotional and talk some shit. And then immediately I feel awful about it. You, on the other hand, are very pragmatic. You're very measured. You say, I would say 99% nice things. And the 1% is usually about yourself. Um, you know, you're, you, you're hard on yourself and how is, how did you grow into that? Why are you that way? Oh man, your observation of me is, is better than the way I often feel. Um, I don't know. I think, I think, uh, it's just a guilty conscience, you know? You don't want <laughs> to hurt nice someone's you feelings. Feel guilty. Well, in a way, it could almost be a defense mechanism if I'm like really internalizing it. When you think about it, right? I don't want. I feel horrific if I hurt somebody's feelings or if I do something. And and dude, I do it all the time. We all do. We're all human beings, and we do that. We we allow our emotions to get the best of us, or or we're just in a bad mood for whatever reason, and you get on a gripe session. And of course, dude, we everybody gossips about one another, right? right. That just happens, dude. That's that the foundation of of human language is founded on gossip. gossip. If, if, yeah, I mean, it's like that. Human beings are just that way. We exchange information that way, be it positive or negative or whatever. Chit chat is like a huge part of being a person. What we're doing now, and um. But I don't, I don't know why I err on the side of optimism. I don't know why. I mean, dude, I've, I've certainly had my fair share of, of shit talking about people. And I'm sure, you know, that happening against, uh, on, to me, but that, that's, just, that's just part of it. I just feel so bad oftentimes and just feel gross after something like that is done. And, and I'm in that furthest thing from perfect, but. I think there's a, there's like cultural stuff around that. Like, you know, I grew up on the East coast, uh, for the first 
18 years of my life and, you know, around Boston and, and New York and whatever. And, you know, people are just more candid in a way, radically candid in terms of how they feel about a situation. And in that way, you don't, there's not an offense to it. Hey, do you want to go to a movie? Fuck no, I don't want to go to a movie with you. (laughs) You know, but if you're in California, it's like, hey, do you want to go to a movie? It's like, yeah, man, I really do. When do you want to go? Like, let's see. And then like, they don't show up. Right, right, right. Right. And so there's this, and then there's in between, you know, and maybe it's Colorado where you get some, <laughs> some candor, but certainly not the East coast. And people think, oh, well, the East coast people are rude, especially Northeast, I should say, right. They're rude because they are candid about how they feel about a situation, but they, they don't, they're not offended, you know? Right. And then, like I said, you go for, it's like the further West you go, the more flaky in my opinion, where it's like, well, just, just say how you actually feel and, you know, don't be afraid of offending people. That is so much easier said than done because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. Like no one, well, I mean, some, but those are assholes. Like you don't want to do it, but there is a, there is a, I just uh, listened to this webinar about like this expert, this woman who's an expert on radical candor, right? And on how to do it in a way that it's like, there's still compassion and there's still like, but there's also no BS, right? So it's a, it's a, I mean, it's a human dilemma, right? On how candid are you? Do you go step over the line? Like, you know, I think it's something certainly I struggle with, like with, you know, having employees and having, you know, family and, you know, how do you, are you radically candid with your mother-in-law? Right, right, exactly. Like, no, of course not. No, the answer is no. <laughs> you're, you're not. You know. Um, I mean, is my and now she's going to listen to this and great. But she's anyway. like, who are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you. <laughs> what are you really thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just using that as an example. Uh, Linda, now always candid with you. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's a great. You know, people. There are people who are super. And in Keith, like you are, as I introduced you, like you're like just famously nice. Right. And, and I think that is optimistic and it's in, and, you know, I don't have anything else to say about it. There's not a, but, you know, um, I got some things. Well, I'll let Corey, Corey's Corey's the king of the conversation. You know, it's, it's just, we've had our, we've had our differences. Oh yeah. No, Keith and I were in business together and, and, um, and I mean, we still, in, in some ways that has started again, but we started sure. a production company together and I ended up leaving because we didn't quite communicate well enough to make it function. Keith was doing the work. I was doing the sort of ideation on some level. And to, to Keith's point, like I'm full of big ideas or I can be, but my execution can be just garbage. And at some point I had to look at that business and go, well, Keith and Andy are doing all the work. I'm actually just talking. You know, I'm just like a blowhard in the room and I need to step out. Um, but there were other variables too. You were at a, you totally really arrived. You know what I mean? In a lot of ways you had, you had two really big successes. And the next thing you know, you were in demand. Yeah. And, and the right thing to do is to, to capitalize on that type of thing. So everything that happened, I think worked out cordially and it worked out. And yeah, and no. Look at it. It was fine. It made sense. Um, but you know, um, it's good to have, I think the best relationships you can have 
are those that do actually draw out a little bit of emotion. It's not just all laughter and, and hanging out and camaraderie. I mean, that stuff is great. We all love that, but it is good to actually get into that battle mode when it's, when it's meant to be constructive, you know? And yeah, I mean, what CJ was saying, I have so much family from the East coast. I've got a lot of relatives from Boston, New Jersey, New York, some now in Florida. And that sensibility is, it's a lot, I, I actually respond to that quite well because I've been around it my whole life. I love when people are just blatantly honest and it can be a little rough around the edges because I've got a history of, of being around that. To me, it's, yeah. it's funny and also kind of refreshing. Coming, you know, my personality is probably a lot more Colorado in the sense that it's like, you know, upbeat and happy and trying to find the silver lining on different types of things for better or worse. But when we get together, I think Corey, you and I are creative collaborations. What I like about them so much is that I might come into the situation with this idea that I'm solely optimistic about and excited. And oftentimes you'll come in from a direction where you're, you're going to just shoot holes in it. And that helps <laughs> fine. No, but I say that in a very positive way because you'll listen to the idea, you'll take it in, you'll read the treatment, whatever it is, but then you'll start coming in and you'll, you'll take on the mindset of that person of whom, which we're trying to sell this to mm. without ever bringing it to the table, you know, and saying like, well, what about, these are the things, these are the flaws that exist in this thing and are probably going to be looked at let's address them now let's fix them now or have a contingency plan in place and i've got so many friendships in my life where i value that person for other reasons but for that particular quality means a lot to me like nick rosen being a mutual friend of all of us here he's very much that guy i've never once came to nick with an idea i had that he didn't immediately just start punching holes in and, and you want that. And it's yeah. funny because oftentimes like a week or two weeks later, Nick will call me or he'll be like, dude, that idea was really good. I don't know what I was thinking, but the truth is, is by that time I've looked at his perspective so much that I started leaning in a different direction because mm -hmm. it's, that isn't, it's, that's an identity thing too. I think that. like there are people who feel that their role is to punch holes in anything that's brought to them. And I appreciate it also. It's totally necessary in the process, but sometimes it's just like, you don't actually, no, you don't need to, you don't, you don't, you don't need to punch holes in this. Like, you like, do you like it or don't you? But you know, you don't need to punch like a hole puncher, you know, yeah. I worked for a hole puncher, love them. But it was like every single thing was like, we punch some holes in that. Right. Like that's my, that's my role is to be the, the whole, are you a hole puncher, Corey? No, you know, it's funny. That's funny. I try not to be. I'm really aware now of oftentimes I caught myself saying, well, the problem is like, that's how I would start a, a statement. And even in, so, so to give people some background, I know we got to wrap up pretty soon here, but like to give people some background, Keith and I uh, work a lot on creative concepting together, be it for television or, or you know, media projects. And and I've really had to, to take a hard reset and look at how I respond to ideas because the, the, I, what I don't want to do is start every sentence with, well, the problem with that is this. I want to enable creativity and foster positivity because I've noticed that I myself respond more effectively 
when I'm encouraged and championed versus, well, let me punch some fucking holes in it. I think there's a creative way to punch holes in it where it's a creative back and forth, like, a, you know, sort of. It's a workshop. It's, it's a, I mean, you workshop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but for a long time, I was a contrarian and I was, for a long time, I was very miserable. And I think that's actually what perpetuated me. It's like, well, let me let, I don't, I, you know, I hear you and I hear there's an element of success potentially in this and I'm jealous of your fervor. So let me shit on it. You know, and that's just not a very great way. That's not a good way to be. I have to so I work on that. Contradict that to some degree. I don't, <laughs> I've never seen you as a person that's being negative for the sake of negativity. I've always considered you a very deep thinker. And when you do, when you do bring that observation to the table of, of, of a, something that isn't working or a facet of that, that needs to be changed. It, I, I've never seen it where it was just, you're just doing it to just shit on the idea. That's not the case. The, the whole, the whole thing is to build up the idea. Well, then and, I've and disguised it really yeah. well. No, I'm just, <laughs> but a lot of times we might, and we, and we still have those, those things where, you know, um, We'll, we'll get all excited. We'll whiteboard something. We'll put it together. And then two days later, we'll circle back and you're like, dude, I thought of doing it this way. And it's, and it takes, and, and I don't agree with it. And then, and vice versa, where I'm like, what if we did it this way? And it's just like, no, nah, that's not going to work. But we discuss it. It's all, I think at the end of the day, that helps to mold the concept into something that's better, you know? Yeah. And um, so I, 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 you're one of my favorite people. You always have been, and I mean this with true sincerity, and I've certainly said it to you before. You're one of my favorite people to creatively concept with because we do not come into this situation with the same idea. You right. need that. Otherwise, your tunnel vision is such a such a terrible thing in creativity because you it starts to become your own personal gospel and you think that it is the way you mm -hmm. really do need those outside perceptions and and they should be different than your own inherent personality otherwise mm -hmm. you're going to just do the same thing over, over and over again yeah you're incredibly gracious it's um no. we should do we should we should always have these conversations let's just fucking <laughs> zoom it all the time zoom. Feel good dude yeah, just make people feel good back <laughs> Uh, I think uh, it was a great conversation around, you know, what you guys in particular, what you guys do and, and, you know, these are interesting times to, to be living in to uncommon to say the least. Um, and hopefully we've talked about some stuff for the Rome audience and for your audiences that is helpful as far as especially aspiring photographers and creatives, because uh, both of you have achieved heights literally in that in that area and i think uh you know this is a good time to reset some things and and evaluate uh which i feel like a lot of the conversation has been just organically around that so thanks keith for all of your time we uh we took a lot of it actually yeah, you man. now how you you just set the record <laughs> well, i'll be podcast. honest man this didn't feel like a podcast it felt like a conversation and i think that's the benefit of doing this with friends you know it's um, I, I, in my mind, I thought I was coming into this. I was thinking this would, this would be a little different, but, um, this was, this was great, man. This was just like, we should have this phone call a couple times a week just to catch right. up. That's what <laughs> right. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. I feel like actually this is just, Corey and I get on with people that we love who are really fascinating and we have like a little 
you know, therapy session (laughs) and we feel better for it. So, um, that's great to hear. Yeah, dude, it's a perfect time to be doing this. Connect. Yeah, we don't connect. Get to see each other in person, man. It's and that's the other thing. I wonder on the other side of this when you see people, if people are going to be as receptive to being like, "Give me a hug, dude. It's good to oh, see you." Everyone's going to be like a germaphobe now, you know. I'm hugging. I'm just going on a hugging <laughs> rampage. Well, I'm like going to ask first. Humper. You're more of a leg humper, dude. You're like, yeah. Like, <laughs> Could you mind if I hump your leg? I mean, we can't hug. Do you it's mind? been a while. This yeah. <laughs> You'll sneak in a couple of strokes at the minimum. Yeah. Minimum. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm creepy like that. Uh, no, I appreciate it, man. And um, I, I just, uh, it's good to see you well. And I'm happy that Dana and Gray are healthy and you're healthy. And, um, and I, you know, of course, I'm going to give you a huge, huge hug on the backside of this. Um, on the backside? <laughs> when it's, when. Uh, where I like it. Yeah. When we're allowed to on the backside. <laughs> okay, so. we've been on we've been on for too long now. Oh yeah. man, I love you guys. It was <laughs> yeah. really, you really too, fun dude. conversation. Good to see you both. Yeah, you yeah, too. Man. Thanks so much. Thanks, man. dude. Of course, man. Anytime. Thanks for listening to Rome from Home with myself and Corey Richards. If you like the show and you want to check it out over on RomeMedia.com, you can see both the video and the audio, plus the show notes where anything that was referenced in this episode, Google search, book, movie will be listed. And if you really like us and you want to leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or any of the places that you listen to podcasts, we would appreciate it. And join us next week when we're going to talk to more icons and experts, prominent figures from the world of adventure here on Rome from home. Thank you.